All right, it's, uh, what a song, you know. There is a fountain, and Christ is all a redemption, and uh, it's a joy to be here with you guys again, to open God's Word, to hear what God has to say, to study it, and then hopefully, turn on my mic. Thank you. He did tell me I was supposed to do that. It's my fault, not his. All right, uh, but then to try to rightly apply the Word of God also. Pray God will give us the grace to do all of that. If you'll open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 27. Our text will be both chapter 27 and 28. Adding both of those together creates a really long reading. So I'm not going to read the whole thing. I am going to read the first bit there of chapter 27. And I will read through verse 14. Deuteronomy 27. 1-14. Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. So it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and coat them with lime, and write on them all the words of this law when you cross over, so that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you. A land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. So it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones, as I am commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build the altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones. And you shall offer on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and eat there, and rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly. Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, Be silent and listen, O Israel. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do His commandments and His statutes, which I command you today. Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. For the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. And I'll pause the reading there. Pray with me. Father, you know that we need your help to understand the things that were written in earlier times for our instruction. We need help to understand it. We need help to communicate and hear it. We need help to rightly apply it. We need help to see your majesty and your character as revealed in it. We need help for everything profitable and good that would come from your word. So that's our prayer, that you would help us so that your people would be that good word, edified, built up, another brick on the, on the building tonight through your word being unfolded. Build us up, Lord. Change us. Make us more like Christ and do so so that he'll be honored 
in the world. Pray in his name. Amen. Well, it's been a long time since we, i.e. you, we were in North Carolina, but since we have been in Deuteronomy. Jeff actually was the last one to teach out of Deuteronomy back in, I think, November. So it's been quite a while. So we'll do just a little bit of catch up. But before we do, sort of a roadmap for tonight's talk. There we go. The slides are going to be there. They're not absolutely necessary for you. So if you find them less helpful, just ignore them. No problem. But what we'll cover tonight is we'll have the introduction and context. That's where we're at in Deuteronomy. Then we'll look at Deuteronomy 27. Then we'll look at Deuteronomy 28 concerning the meaning. What's there? What's it mean? What is it? And then finally, the fourth part, the significance. What is all this really about and why does it matter to us? How does it fit in the picture of the Bible as a whole? That's the roadmap. That's where we're going. So then first, the introduction and context. Where are we in Deuteronomy? All right, so if you think big picture, of course, you know, we have the Bible, which you can divide then into the Old Testament and the New Testament. And one of the sort of subsections, if you could speak that way, of the Old Testament is the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. And so then, of course, you have in the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy being our text for tonight. Well, how about dividing Deuteronomy? Where are we at there? There's a lot of ways you could do it. I looked through several commentaries. They all do it kind of differently, but they all kind of have the same big picture. Don't worry about the details of this slide. I just want you to see that there are ways to to sort of structure things. This author put it uh, in terms of the covenant. What's going on here with the covenant? That would be the covenant at Sinai, the Mosaic covenant or the law. This is all about the law. Well, Jeff handled the second and third points there the last time we talked. That'd be chapters, well, I guess it was just the third he handled, chapters 12 through 26. And our section is Roman numeral there, number four, confirming the covenant. We have chapters 27 and 28. So last time you had 12 through 26, and if you include 4 to 11, roughly, what you basically have, if you summarize the section in yellow there, are all the particulars of the law. The Ten Commandments, what do you do when this infraction happens, what's the penalty for this, lots of specifics. You know, if you read through, you have these memories of reading the law and all the details, they're there in the yellow. In our section, bullet point, or Roman numeral number four, is right at the close of that. We're just on the heels of it, and it's confirming the covenant. And I think it'll make more sense to you in just a moment what that means, confirming the covenant. But note that we're past the details and we're moving into something new and something different. Whoop. Oh, no. Just a moment, if you please. Okay, this is good. We've skipped a few slides. I'm not going back, all right? The train is pressing on. But that's where we're at, is this new section confirming the covenant. Details completed, and now Moses is going to give them these, these instructions for what, what needs to happen when they enter the land. So now I want you to think time for a minute. They come out of Egypt. They immediately disobey in a variety of ways, one of which is when they're supposed to go into Canaan, they don't want to do it. They don't believe the Lord. And so God says, back into the wilderness with you, where they hang out for 40 years until they can all die. After 40 years, God in his mercy, because he will keep his promises, brings them right back up to where they're about to enter the promised land. They're going to cross the Jordan River, and finally, he's going to bring them to that land flowing with milk and honey that he promised. But now they're coming there with a covenant. 
They've just had the Sinai covenant given to them on Mount Sinai, the Mosaic covenant, the law. And when they get into the land, they're supposed to do some things and they're going to confirm that covenant. I.e., God would say to them, when you get into the land, you're to be my covenant people. And in order to ratify that, confirm that, make a ceremony out of it, drill it into your brains, we're going to do some things right after we cross the Jordan River to help all of you say, yes, we will keep the covenant with God in the land as he told us to do. So the meaning of Deuteronomy 27 then is that whole, you could call it sort of a ceremony that they're to have to confirm on their end, we will keep the covenant. Okay, what to do right as you enter the land. There are four points there if you divide Deuteronomy 27 up into four main things they're supposed to do upon entering. The first is keep the commandments. Verse 1, that happens over and over again, the instructions to keep the commandments in these two chapters. That's one big point. The second is that they're to set up some stones. We'll come back to that. The third is they're to build an altar and sacrifice to the Lord. And then finally, what I'm going to call the ceremony. People on one mountain, people on the other mountain, blessings over here, curses over here. And where does Israel go? Right down the middle. You get the idea. Blessed if you obey, cursed if you don't. But it's all underscored via this sort of ceremony that God has given them to do through the mouth of Moses. Well, let's take those points one at a time. The first is keep the commandments. This is pretty straightforward, but I am going to read to you from verses 9 and 10. Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, Be silent and listen, O Israel. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do His commandments and His statutes, which I command you today. As I said, this is a drumbeat throughout these two chapters. Keep the commandments. You have to obey the Lord when you get there in the land where there will be consequences. And then second, there's this bit about the stones, which may be new to some of you. They're to set up these large stones on Mount Ebal. There's some history there. It's close to Shechem, a place where Abraham would have been in the land before they went to Egypt. Abraham would have sacrificed to the Lord there. It's an important location associated with God's promise to Abraham. And now look, God's fulfilling it. And here they're doing this back again. They're to put these stones there to remember God's covenant with them. They're also, verse 2 and verse 4, to coat them with lime. Now, I did a little reading and a little study. Not exactly sure what the lime was and what exactly the purpose was. Perhaps the stones were engraved, maybe. On the other hand, perhaps it's a, a white sort of background, and then you write the words of the law. The details aren't so important, but the main thing you need to know is the, the stones have the words of God in the covenant written on them. So that as Israel goes in, what do they see visually right in front of them? There's the law of God we have to keep. Okay? That's what's going on with the stones. And then the third major thing, right as they enter the land, is there to build an altar. It says there in verse 5. Made of stones, verse 5 and 6, uncut stones. Now, don't cut them with iron. You hear that kind of over and over again in the Old Testament. Don't put your hands on them, so to speak. You'll defile them. And then two kinds of offerings, burnt offerings and peace offerings. But note, it's not all fear and judgment. If you think of it that way, you think about Sinai and how terrifying it was. Well, they also had a feast at Sinai, right? And then here again, another feast there in verse 7. Hold a feast with your God. And even more than that, they're to rejoice before the Lord their God in verse 7. So it's not, it's not that they're 
unwilling and upset about all these things and terrified and shriveling away. No, they're in covenant with the good and wonderful God and they should want to keep his commandments. And there's this altar where they worship him through sacrifice. And then fourth, there's this ceremony on the, really between, I suppose, the two mountains. All of it's kind of the ceremony, but we're going to zoom in on this one little section now that has to do with six tribes on one mountain and six on another. Mount Gerizim is the mountain with the blessings, and you can see the tribes listed there. Mount Ebal is the mountain with the curses, and you can see the tribes listed there. Verse 14. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who... And I couldn't help but reading verse 15, so I went on when I read the text earlier and read you the first one of those. But beginning in verse 15, through the end of the chapter, there are 12 curses. They're familiar. None of them would have been unusual. They're not exactly the same as the Ten Commandments. They're different, but they're representative of the kinds of things you ought not to do. For example, one of them is don't move the boundary marker between your land and your neighbor's land. That's called stealing. It's called lying. Don't do that. Cursed is the man who breaks the covenant by so doing. And so you get the 12 curses, and then the very last one there in verse 26 says... Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Which is kind of a summary verse. If you don't confirm everything written in this law, you are therefore a transgressor and are therefore under the curse of God. I don't know if you guys can imagine going into the promised land, seeing on stones the law of God that you are to keep. Your parents are dead because they broke it. And then there's, these, there's this altar, and animals are being slaughtered and sacrificed on the altar. And now there's people on this mountain and on this mountain, blessed if you obey, cursed if you don't. We're in the land. Keep God's commandments. That's the situation. This should be kind of a, this would be a startling reality. And they're to confirm in this way the covenant that they made, or God made with them, you should say, on Mount Sinai. I mentioned to you already the 12th verse. I won't read it again. It's a summary. Well, kind of the summary of chapter 27, the general principle, this is a quote, is given, namely, that in the future, there would have to be a further renewal of obedience and commitment to God's law. In the future just means Moses is telling them before they get in the land that when they get there, they're going to have to do all the things I've been describing to you. A renewal of obedience and commitment to God's law which had just been declared and expounded in chapters, as I mentioned, 12 through 26. So you guys got the picture. That's chapter 27 in a nutshell. We finished it. We're moving on now to chapter 28. What's there? Chapter 28 really has two parts. The first section are all the blessings in the first 14 verses. And then the rest of the chapter, verse 15 to 68, much longer, are all of the curses for disobedience. So I'm going to read you another quote. For obedience, i.e. if they'll obey, God promises abundant crops and food, human and animal fertility, wealth, surplus, economic preeminence, and military success. Disobedience, however, is threatened with the reverse. Drought, diseases, crop failure, economic collapse and dependency, defeat in war, conquest, oppression, famine, cannibalism, I added due to siege desperation, and exile. 
So you get the picture. The first 14 verses say, you'll be blessed in the land if you're a covenant-keeping people. And then starting in verse 15, you get the inverse of all of that. A lot of it's kind of word for word. And you'll receive the opposite curse if you're a covenant-breaking people when you get in the land. But note, as I said, there's a lot more material in the curses. It's not a one-to-one parallel. What's the additional material that makes up the extra portion of the curses? Verse 49 would represent to you a foreign nation, not a good one, that's going to come. Right in the end, we know who this ends up being, right? This would be Assyria and then Babylon. A foreign nation will come if you're covenant breakers. What will happen? Verse 52, there's going to be a siege. So you get this really dark language about people eating their own flesh and children. It's awful. It's really dark. The idea is the siege is so bad, they will be so desperate that the dignified noblewoman will be secretly hoarding her own children to eat. It's really dark. This is Deuteronomy 28, right? And then finally, related to that, is the exile. Verse 63 and 64, let me read it. And you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. That's sort of the culmination of the foreign land and then the siege and then the siege is successful and then they're taken away as exiles. That's the extra material why the curses are longer. Bear with me as I operate this thing. Ah, here we are. A few other things to note about Deuteronomy 28. The word if occurs in the English it's at least three times. And so I want you to see kind of how it, how it makes sense here, or at least the logic of the if. Here's how it goes. Verse 1. Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I commanded you. Then, you could say, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. That is, if you obey, God will bless you. I don't want to belabor the point, so I'll skip the additional references, but it's the exact same thing. It's, as I said, a consistent drumbeat. If you obey, God will bless you. If you don't, you will meet God's curse. Ah, here we are. There's a few summary verses in Deuteronomy 28 that sort of fill up the character of the whole. Verses 9 and 10. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself as he swore to you if you keep his commandments of the Lord. Keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will be afraid of you. There's a few things there that you should know. First, there to be a holy people to the Lord. That is, there's a special kind of relationship between the Lord and the people that's filled out by this covenant, but they belong to Him. And it's not private. It's public. Other nations are going to hear, as they already have been, i.e. the Exodus, about these people being particularly the special people of the Lord. God says it will continue. You'll get in the land. You'll be obviously blessed. Everybody out here will say, yes, look at those people. Those are the people of the Lord. They're going to belong to him. And he's going to get glory because of his blessings if they will obey and keep the covenant. That is 
In a nutshell, more or less, the meaning of Deuteronomy 28. That concludes the meaning of both chapters. And as I said, what I want to do now is sort of think through the significance of both of those chapters. Where do they fit in the Bible? How do they apply to us? Let's ask ourselves some questions about that. One thing that you should note that sort of should, I think at this point, be standing out to all of us is the holiness of God. We're talking about the kind of horrible judgments that God pours upon people because of sin. He doesn't think lightly about it. You can read these chapters, even as a Christian, definitely as a Christian, and meditate on and see revealed the holiness of the the one that we call Father. In tandem with that, of course, is the wickedness of sin. God is not overreacting to the evil of his people. His curses are not an overstep. He's not exaggerating. Sin is wicked. Additionally, as I was just mentioning, God will have a people. They're going to be his own special people in covenant with him. He's not distant and aloof. He's getting to himself a people. More on that in a moment. That's obviously related to the holiness of God's people. If God is holy and sin is wicked, God can't have a sinful people for his own special people. And then finally, Romans 15.4 Paul talks about the Old Testament, whatever was written, whatever was written in earlier times, referring to the scripture. He says it was all written for our instruction. So we can't unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. Paul says, no, no. And in Romans 15, he quotes a psalm, and he quotes other places in the New Testament repeatedly, as do all the New Testament writers. These things are written for our instruction today. They're not antedated, antiquated, and out of date. These are for our instruction. So remembering where Deuteronomy is in sort of the context of the whole Bible, Old Testament, first five books, it's the fifth of the first five books of the Pentateuch. That's related to the significance. If you zoom out, the covenant we've just been describing is called the Mosaic Covenant, or the Law. A few questions. When did it begin? It began at Mount Sinai, right? And was it the first covenant? Well, no. It was, uh, it pre, or let's see, followed the covenant with Abraham by about 400 or 430 years. So we should think, well, what is this other covenant that came before the law? What happened to it? Related question, is the Mosaic covenant ongoing? It's a good question. Shouldn't say that about your own questions. What then of the Abrahamic covenant? Well, Paul talks about this relationship between the two in Galatians. And one of the things that he says, among many other things, is that the, a later covenant, in principle, can't just invalidate and sweep away a covenant that was already ratified previously. Now, that's really important. That's really important. If that's the case, we need to know what happened in the Abrahamic covenant that the Mosaic covenant can't invalidate. God's blessing in the Abrahamic covenant comes by promise. That should sound like a pretty significant contrast to what we've just been saying in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. The Mosaic covenant, blessing would come by obedience, i.e. keeping the law. So they're at least different in that way right from the outset. But it's not, we don't need to make the mistake that This later covenant, i.e. the Mosaic covenant, is somehow bad or inferior. No, because Paul in Romans 7 would say, no, 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 the law is holy and righteous and good. So it doesn't give the blessing, but it is good. It can't, as Paul would say, give life. 
And you would say then, what does it do? Why do we have it? There's a lot of things that could be said. I mentioned some, like the character of God, the evil of sin, the necessity of holiness in God's people, all of that. But especially when you compare the two covenants, Abrahamic and later Mosaic, one of the key things that it does, the law does, and that it, though it doesn't give life, is that it exposes our sin. Remember the 12th verse of chapter 27, the 12th curse, pardon me, of chapter 27. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Did the Israelites obey or confirm all the words of the law by doing them? No, they did not. Their parents did not, and they did not, and we do not. I've mentioned enough of the history of Israel. I won't repeat it all, but it's not a pretty picture as far as obedience to God or keeping his covenant. It does not go well ever. So Deuteronomy 27 and 28, representing the entirety of the Mosaic Law, can't give you life. They can't expose your sin. Another way of saying it is, as we hear all the time, may we never tire of hearing it, obeying God cannot get you favor with God because you're a transgressor. Transgressors are not impressive to God even when they try to obey later. You're still a transgressor. Law can't give you life, but it can lead you to life. What's the significance of Deuteronomy 27 and 28 in the big picture? Well, Paul comments on this subject, and he says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. If you've not read Galatians in a while, you should go home and read it. It's six chapters, and it's one of the chief subjects of the book for Paul to sort of compare and contrast the roles of the Abrahamic covenant and then later the law in redemption history. So if you're fuzzy on how they relate, that's basically Paul's argument in Galatians. And it would be helpful to you, edifying. The law leads us to Christ, right? It can't give you life. God already promised he would give life by the Abrahamic covenant. And Abraham stood and listened to God's promise. And he believed God. And God reckoned it to him as righteousness on the basis of faith. Faith only. And that's the same way that we're saved by Christ. Not by keeping all the commandments, because we, like Israel, failed, but by standing, hearing God's promise, and just receiving that he said he will do, and in our case now has done, everything he said he would do in Christ. Well, what did he do? Later, or I guess in this case, earlier in Galatians, listen to the curse language. Think of Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Listen to the curse language. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Whatever was written in earlier times is written for our instruction. Deuteronomy 27 and 28 says, Cursed is everyone who doesn't confirm all the words of this law by doing them. The Holy Spirit says, We are all disobeyers. But the way Christ rescues is that he would stand there between the two mountains, so to speak, the blessings, the curses, and stand as the disobeyer, the breaker of God's covenant, and receive all the curse. Not just in the particular details outlined for us in Deuteronomy 27, but the full cup, all the anger of God, anything bad that God would ever want to do to a sinner. He did it to Jesus for us. 
That's the gospel. And Paul goes back and he reads and he says, oh, curse. Jesus became a curse for us. That's an awful and a wicked word. It's a good word, but it's a really terrible reality. And that's what Jesus became for us. And now, risen from the dead, there he sits, interceding for you and me. We were lawbreakers, but he saves us. He redeems us. He's now changing us. The saints in the Old Testament didn't have the Holy Spirit in the same way we do. They didn't have the New Covenant. He gives us this great gift of sanctification, conformed to the image of Christ, and the day will come when it's all over. It's all over. The fear of conscience is gone. Law-breaking is gone. Christ will be all, and we'll all be well. That's all coming. That's our hope. It's like the text this morning. The God who raises the dead is the one in whom we've set all our hope. A few applications beyond what I've already said. Read the Old Testament. Keep coming to Sunday night and hear it taught to you. Maybe lots of us, myself included, were really unfamiliar with these chapters. They're written for our instruction. They're edifying. It's good. Read the Old Testament. Meditate on the holiness of God, as I mentioned previously. Meditate on God's own desire for a people. Desire is probably too um, light of a word. Not just desire, it's a sovereign exertion of omnipotent power to get a people. But fair enough. Maybe number four here, ask God to search you, expose your sin, and lead you to Christ. That's a good thing. We'd want to put ourselves underneath the law of God and say, Lord, search me, know me, see if there be any, be any unhelpful or wicked way within me. Use your law to show me, even now as a believer, how I've fallen short of your glory and where I need to be forgiven afresh, so to speak, and then changed in the image of Christ. Let the law of God be useful to you that way. And that's all I've got. So we have, I think, time for questions. Yeah, we should have plenty of time for questions if you have them. If I'm going about this the right way here, I could be rebuked if uh, Trey wanted to. It would be fine. <laughs>